When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to the least of these, my brothers, you have done it to me. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, again, thank you so much for having me. My name is Stephen Yates. I'm one of the pastors at University Presbyterian Church um, just up the interstate a ways. Um, I have a wonderful wife named Chrissy. And we have a one-year-old now named Julie. Chrissy is tending the nursery this morning at UPC, so she sends her greetings to you. And I am so happy to be back. We love having a relationship with Christ the King here, and so the session of UPC as well sends their greetings to you all. It is 2015, in case you still needed a reminder, and 2015 is special. It is special for a number of different reasons, um, but one of those reasons is that 2015 is only one year away from 2016, and one year from this week, in fact, a very important thing happens in our country, and that is that we elect our highest offices, particularly the President of the United States. If you are a certain type of person, you look forward to this like looking forward to the juiciest ribeye that you have ever tasted. If you are like some other people in the room, you look forward to this as much as your next root canal. And so you have already perhaps been either loving or hating seeing the the newspapers, online articles, your social media feeds and whatnot, all dominated by discussion of the talking points of the candidates and primaries and whatnot, I have been vacillating between those two, sometimes enjoying very, very much this process, sometimes just wishing it would all go away. I pray one day that we just have a great benevolent dictator that we never have to vote in again, and we get one in Jesus. Uh, I just don't know when he's coming back. So I wait with anticipation for that. But one of the things that's unique about this process, whether you love it or you hate it, is that you get to participate in it by voting. Um, And lest uh, we believe what some people criticize us for, you are not only voting just one way or just another way. But in our system, we have so many different issues, so many different talking points, Um, And these can seem overwhelming, but there's a great freedom in it because it means that we as people within this country get to participate and engage our own minds and our own hearts and our own beliefs in what things we value 
in what the positions of these various parties and candidates are going to be. As Christians, we even more so get to do that because we do have an authority that is greater than simply our collected philosophies and wisdoms and opinions. We have God's word as an authority. But this promotes a challenge to us uh, because it requires us not just to take perhaps even what we've always thought for granted as the Bible's position, the Christian position on this or that or the other thing, but rather it requires us every time we revisit these issues to engage with what God's Word really says. Now this morning, I promise you, I do not believe the pulpit is such that I should sway you towards any single political opinion. I don't necessarily think I have a very easy defined one even myself. But what I do think we should be doing is that we should be taking the various issues that we encounter and continually returning to God's Word and considering what does God say on on this issue or this issue or this issue. Rarely, often, will we find God in His Word simply to hand us a a completed ballot and say, all right, this issue comes so clear through His Word that you know who to vote for and, and, and the day is done. But at least God's Word, in the context in which it was written, through the Holy Spirit, can use the wisdom and the position and the beauty of the gospel to help influence our choices and how we interact in our world. This morning we're going to do that almost as a case study with one issue, and it's the issue that as I've been watching debates and reading articles, for some reason God has just brought this again and again to my mind, and it's the issue of poverty in our country. The issue of poverty in our country. Poverty is sort of a a strand that flows through so many different issues that political pundits and uh, those trying to run for office debate over and over again. Now, there are the obvious ones like economics, struggle over the minimum wage, struggle over the price of health care. There are somewhat less obvious ones like immigration or like our role in foreign policy. Did you know, for instance, that over 3.2 billion people today in the world survive on less money, about $2.50, than you spent on your coffee this morning? That, that, that is a major issue with respect to our foreign policy. But poverty even you know, can, can blend over into social issues. I was fascinated through my research to find that 42% of all abortions in this country are performed on women who live under the poverty line. This is an issue that that spans parties, that that goes well over a simplistic understanding of money, and so it's something I think the gospel calls us to look at. And we're going to this morning very simply in three ways. One question, we're just going to ask, what is poverty? Why does it exist? A second question, we're going to ask, are we supposed to do something about it? I remind my students um, and the children I teach all the time that no matter how long you've been in church, sometimes you can assume things the Bible say that it doesn't. So I don't want to assume that the Bible tells us to engage this issue on any given way, but rather I want to explore it. And third, if so, how? So what are we supposed to do anything and how, if so? That's where we're going this morning. But before that, I'd like to go to the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, your word is truth. It is a sharp, double-edged sword, um, which is a striking and powerful issue in your word, but also is 
scary because it means the sword gets turned on your people, on us, just as much as on the people out there. Please help us this morning, help me this morning, not to um, engage your word in some academic fashion. Help it not even just to be a, a pragmatic fashion that we would be able to engage our, our democratic process, but cut us to your heart. Cut us to the heart that we might see how even very practical issues in this world nonetheless draw us to yourself and call us to go out into a broken and dying world. Thank you for being with us this morning. I pray for this church. I do pray for Chuck this morning that you would continue to give him a comfort and peace and readiness to receive what I believe to be the blessing of of your doctors and your care. Be with this church, we pray in your name. Amen. All right, three questions. First of all, what is poverty? What is poverty this morning? A definition of poverty that I love, actually, I found in a very, I don't want to say a very non-Christian source. I'm always weary of saying this is a Christian or not Christian person or Christian or not Christian definition of something. But nonetheless, this is a definition that was given not because it was Christian or not. Here, that's about the best way I can put it. A definition for poverty. Poverty is the inability of somebody to assemble for themselves the wealth, the experiences, and the skills necessary to flourish in society. That's straight out of an economic textbook. Poverty is the inability of somebody to obtain for themselves the wealth, the skills, and the experiences necessary to flourish in society. Now, I say that's a non-Christian definition um, because it was out of a non-specifically Christian textbook um, for economics, but in some respects, it's a very Christian definition. Um, You don't need to turn there. You may, in fact, be very familiar with this verse, but in Genesis 1, specifically verses 26 through 28, we find what theologians call the creation or cultural mandate. It was the marching orders for humanity that we were supposed to fill the earth, we were supposed to subdue it, which means we were going to be sort of the shepherds or stewards of the world, and we were going to do all of this in light of a community with God. God would walk among us. God would be with us as we branched out and filled the world with this glorious community of people caring for God and caring for the world. It was supposed to be a beautiful thing. In fact, it was supposed to be an environment in which every single person would flourish. Now, of course, in Genesis chapter 3, mankind rebels against God, and you know the story. We don't. In fact, we don't flourish at all. Rather, the exact opposite. The world is corrupted. We are corrupted. Our relationships are corrupted. Our work is corrupted. But the interesting thing that a lot of people miss is that those original marching orders don't go away. Just because the world is broken and we are the ones who broke it does not mean that God does not intend for humanity to flourish. Now, it might change a little bit the the reasons or way in which that flourishing is going to happen, but mankind is still supposed to flourish on this world. We are supposed to still be the image bearers of God his ambassadors, here to fill the earth, 
to grow and to care for it despite sin. So in some respects, our definition of poverty is a very Christian one because God does call all of us to flourish, even if perhaps Christians and non-Christians might differ as to what that flourishing really means. Now, if poverty is that inability to flourish because of the inability to get the things you need to flourish, it makes us ask why. Um, David Cotter is an economist and a theologian. He got both degrees. And uh, what's helpful about getting both degrees is sometimes you have a unique perspective on things. He outlines three reasons why poverty exists that I find incredibly helpful that I'd like to share with you all this morning. The first poverty exists, this failure to flourish exists because people oppress people, because of oppression. You can imagine, if we we kind of go back to Genesis and put it in, in almost mathematical terms, that God essentially says, you are going to enjoy X. You were meant to enjoy X. You were meant to live in and delight in X. Well, the guy sitting next to you was meant to enjoy and flourish in Y and another person in Z, whatever those concepts are. And yet, in our sin, in our brokenness, what we have said is, God, you were wrong. I want to flourish by getting X and Y and Z. And so our redefinition of flourishing requires that we make sure other people don't. And this is the story throughout humanity, that people are not satisfied with what they have, with what they have been given by the Lord, and so they are selfish and exploit others. We see it on a very large scale, for instance, in Scripture, when the Egyptians exploit the entire nation of Israel. And of course, we've seen slavery and genocide throughout um, the history of this world. Now, interestingly, though, in Scripture... This this sense of oppression and greed is most often levied at God's people. And so, sadly, for instance, this is Isaiah 56, verse 11. The dogs, by which Isaiah means the leaders of Israel, the dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain. One and all. You see, especially in the Old Testament, covenant faithfulness to God was often united to God's people, making sure everyone within their midst was flourishing. God's people, in in fact, had specific laws to take care of the poor, the orphan, the widow, those who did not have the ability on their own to do this flourishing without the protection and care of of their neighbor. Now this this trend continues into the New Testament. This is James chapter 5. Again, James talking to Christians specifically. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the the, the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. The cries of these harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. 
You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. Sobering words, scary words, in fact, especially as they're leveraged at God's people. For one of the great reasons for poverty is indeed that people oppress other people. Now, of course, there's a second reason as well. And this is that um, people are in poverty because people are sinners. Um, Our sin is a great source of our failure to flourish, of poverty. You can imagine, for instance, an individual who, because of their own sinful choices, just decides that I should be selfish in a different way. I should be selfish by not having to work, and people should just do things for me. They should give me things, and I should be able to sit back and enjoy a life of luxury without the pain and struggle and toil of working in this world. Well, Scripture has a lot to say to such people. The Apostle Paul, for instance, with the church at Thessalonica, the books of Thessalonians were written to these people. There was a group within this church that had decided Jesus was going to come back very soon. And since Jesus is going to come back very soon, I don't really need to go to work today. I'm just going to wait on Jesus. And Paul specifically tells them, if you don't work, don't eat. You don't get that luxury. You're, you're called to work until the Lord returns. The book of Proverbs, likely in Proverbs 10, verse 4, says, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Not only is it our own sin just in sort of resisting work, um, which would bring us wealth and possession and experience, but but also some of our, our own sinful choices that take that wealth away from us. You can imagine here in the United States, for instance, all of our addiction to consumerism and our desire to have the nicest thing or the best thing or the most valuable thing or the newest thing and the mountains of credit card debt that many are in, some even incredibly um, in poverty at a debt level, making even six and seven figure incomes. Um, It amazes me to, to, to see that. Um, Also, uh, those who perhaps uh, might be addicted to various things, whether this is gambling or drugs or alcohol or some type of experience such that all the resources they have, regardless of how hard they work, are poured into this one thing, and therefore they can't flourish, and neither can those who are relying on them, like their children, like their spouses, like their family. Um, we We could really spend all day outlining how sinful choices Um, stop us from flourishing um, with respect to poverty. Now, here's the issue, though, before I get into point number three. The issue is that most of us politically unite to one of these reasons and not the other. I've just shown you Scripture holds both of these out. People are oppressed by other people, and people are oppressed by their own sin. And without naming names, in this country, many of us stereotypically focus specifically on people being oppressed by other people, and that's the reason. Others of us stereotypically say, you know what, it's their own fault they're in poverty. We cannot hold both of these together. But Scripture calls us to, because both are reasons for poverty. And third, is simply living in a broken world. 
Um, sometimes people are in poverty not because of other people sinning against them. Sometimes people are in poverty not because of their own sin, but simply because bad things happen in a world that sin still exists in. Bad things happen. Earthquakes happen. Tornadoes happen. Hurricanes happen. Whether you all cannot even imagine living in El Paso happens to people um, and thus takes away their ability to um, raise that wealth for themselves. Illness happens. People get sick. People die. The primary breadwinner in a family sometimes is, is drawn ill. It can no longer do the thing that brought that family income. They live on disability for the rest of their life and they're impoverished. Not only do we have people sinning against other people or people because of their own sin, but simply the world itself fighting back against us because the world groans due to our rebellion against God. Poverty exists for all of these different reasons, and we can't simply hold on to one. Probably one last thing before we move on that I just find fascinating is as we really lean into this scriptural ethic of poverty is how these overlap. Again, for instance, you know, I just said that we often just hold on to one rather than multiple, but consider the effect of natural disasters on people that are already impoverished. I don't know whether I could say I had the pleasure um, or the blessing or the absolute curse to visit New Orleans six months after Hurricane Katrina ravaged that environment. And for those of you in the military, um, it is by far the closest I ever think I will ever get to feeling like I'm in a war zone to experience that place. But I was fascinated and horrified to find that over a third of the individuals affected by that great storm were those living in some of the poorest conditions in that city. They didn't have things that I take for granted, like homeowner's insurance or um, friends and family, networks that I could just go to and rely on myself. You can imagine, again, how these things overlap when um, it is sometimes those who have made poor choices of their own and they're impoverished because of their own sin who then get further exploited by other people. A friend of mine just the other day recounted that his grandmother um, already a, a person who's struggled deeply with various things, was taken advantage of by a scam artist. And $70,000 later, um, she has nowhere else to go but now to live with this man who himself um, is not ready to support um, someone else in his life. So this is horrible, a horrible situation, a horrible result of the brokenness of the world. But Scripture still asks us, are we supposed to do something with it? And again, I say we need to make sure we don't assume an answer. So let's actually go to the text I read at the beginning of the service here, Matthew 25. If you have your Bibles, this is the, the, the section of Scripture I really want us to, to turn to um, and look at for just a moment. Having already read it, I only want to read the final verse that the king our God, in this parable that is not really a parable, um, says there in verse 40, The king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now in this passage, as, as, as we said, Jesus is 
describing this future situation in very specific terms. Um, Some people have taken this um, so literally as to say that it is not because of the gospel of God, it is not faith in Jesus, but it's works that um, somehow play a part in our ability to go to heaven or hell. That is not what is being said here by any means. Um, Jesus, however, also comes far short of saying that such deeds do not matter at all. And in, in fact, does exactly the opposite by elevating them to such a high, heavenly, final judgment level status. So based on verse 40 alone, if this were a classroom, we could talk about it. Are we supposed to do anything about poverty? Yes, of course we are. And I think we are for a far better reason than many would say this passage talks about. Many have, unfortunately, used this passage in a very moralistic way to say, okay, we're Christians, we're supposed to be following the Lord, and the Lord is telling us right here um, that we're supposed to do good things to people. We're supposed to make sure good things happen to them. So feeding them and visiting them and caring for them, etc., etc. That's kind of a moral element to it. Some people would even take it a step further and say, well, maybe it's not just a, a moral element, but we're supposed to kind of quasi-spiritualize it and say, you know, I'm supposed to do this because, because of the image of God in somebody that, that if you're poor and I'm not and I take care of you, I'm doing it because of the Jesus inside of you or something to that effect. But that's not what Jesus says. And I don't want to, to, to nitpick too much about uh, language, about grammar, but this is so important that you need to look at it. In verse 40, I'm going to read it a third time. The king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Many of us often misquote this verse. We say, you did it for me or on behalf of me. But that's not what Jesus says. You did it to me. This means that our ministry to the poor and the sick and the needy here in Matthew is not put in a moralistic or spiritualistic category of good works. Rather, it's put in a category of worship. What are we doing here on Sunday morning? Yes, we're we're learning from God's Word. Yes, we're fellowshipping with other people. But primarily, we're worshiping the Lord. We're doing something to God. There's a vertical dimension going on here on a Sunday morning. The same exact thing, a vertical dimension, is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 25. That whenever we are caring for the poor, whatever we are doing for the sake of alleviating this impoverished, broken condition of the world, we're not just doing it because it's great or nice or good. We're doing it as an act of worship to Jesus. And yet, turn over the next chapter. Now, I'm skipping a lot of, of, of verses here. Of course, Jesus in the passage we just read in Matthew 25 essentially says the exact same thing in a negative, in a reverse. Anybody who didn't do all of this stuff um, is not um, invited Um, into fellowship with him. Um, And after a short pause, picking up in chapter 26, verse 6, a second story ensues. 
Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, and a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this anointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now did you catch it? In Matthew chapter 25, we have Jesus saying that things done for the poor are things done to Jesus, in worship to Jesus. Now here in Matthew 26, the disciples are ready. They've heard the last sermon, they've got it, they're okay, they're ready. Suddenly this woman comes in bringing a bottle of perfume that, um, as best archaeologists can believe, is probably worth about 30 grand. Husbands, prepare yourself for Christmas. Are you ready to buy 30 grand worth of perfume for your wife? Um, There are various reasons why this could have been worth so much, why she would have had such an important object that we can't go into right now, but sufficient to say she grabs the whole thing, she breaks it, which would have been the only way to open such an important bottle at the time, breaking the neck of it, and she pours the whole thing on Jesus' feet. And the disciples, especially in light of the conversation they've just had with Jesus, flip out. What? Jesus! What could that have paid for? How many of our ministries could that have gone to? How many churches could have been planted? What building projects could we have done with that perfume? And yet Jesus says the same thing he said in Matthew 25 in reverse. This is something not done to the poor. And yet it was also done to me. It's an important juxtaposition that they're right next to each other i just remind you um, the early text did not have chapter or verse numbers so in your bible reading plan when you normally read matthew 25 and you close your bible and you walk away and you pick up matthew 26 the next day and you totally forget what you read in matthew 25 that wasn't the experience of the original reader the original reader or hearer would have heard this passage read all the way through And they would have been absolutely shocked to hear what almost sounds like a contradictory message from Jesus. Care for the poor as worship of me. But make sure you don't miss, care for the poor is not the only, or even perhaps most important, worship of me. We need to be able to see Scripture's balance in combating poverty. It is a balance that calls us to not see ourselves or set ourselves up as little messiahs. That, oh, if only we could raise enough money, if only we could figure out the best community program or the best politician or the best series of standards or or something, somehow we could beat this. We won't. We can't. We are not Jesus and only Jesus on a cross not even Jesus as a politician or ruler, could deal with any sin, much less the sin of poverty. 
Scripture calls us to a balance that makes poverty not the only issue. Now, that's, that's a great thing. But I want to take one more step back before we move on to point number three, and that is this. Some of us in our hearts hear, oh good, there's a balance. That means what I'm doing is enough already. We assume that, oh, anytime we hear there's a balance, that means that our place of comfort, our place of, of happiness, of contentment, at our participation in the biblical issue, whatever it is, is enough. Scripture tells us there's a balance. But the way Scripture tells us there's a balance is not to say, okay, you want to give enough to the poor, but not too much. It's rather to say, remember the gospel, how amazing and powerful and sacrificial and costly and wonderful the gospel is? If it's the thing that care for the poor gets balanced against, let's talk about just how much the Bible talks about giving to the poor. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Paul calls the rich to be rich in good works and generous. In Ephesians 4, verse 28, Paul argues against stealing. The reason he argues against stealing is not because stealing's bad, though it is. No, he says, don't steal so you can work honestly and give stuff away to the poor. His very ethic of honest living. In Acts 2.45, the early church sells what they have whenever a need arises. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 10, the early church takes Paul and gives him essentially... Um, a test of orthodoxy, an ordination exam, if you will. He passes with flying colors, and their last word to him, remember the poor, which Paul says is the very thing he wanted to do. First John chapter 3, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And I could go on and on and on. We must see that Scripture has a balance such that we don't fall into the pit of only focusing on this one issue. But we cannot hear that word and also fail to act, assuming that because there is balance, our comfort is okay. What we have done is enough. So point number three, how does Scripture call us to respond? Very quickly. Scripture calls us to respond in many different ways. Too many for me to cover this morning by far. Um, But I'm looking at these three this morning. One, Scripture calls us to respond sacrificially. Sacrificially. I mentioned the early church in Acts 2. In Acts 2 and again in Acts 4, um, Luke, the writer of Acts, records that the early church did a very interesting thing. He says they had all their possessions in common and sold them as any had need so that there were no needs among them. Now some have said, oh, this just means that the early church was socialist um, or communist. And and that's not at all the case. Um, There was still private property, but this is what these scriptures were saying. The early church was so convinced that they needed to care for the poor among and around them, that they were willing to give sacrificially 
any time a need arose, any time a need came up, it's almost like a runner in the stocks, just waiting, waiting for that gun to go off so they could run. That's how quick they were to want to be sacrificial. And this means they were legitimately sacrificial. This isn't like taking up a benevolence offering and you take the extra $5 you had in your pocket to spend on lunch and you throw it in the offering. In Acts chapter 4, we see Barnabas sell a plot of land that he owns, brings this bag of money and sets it at the apostles' feet. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira get killed for lying about the same thing. This would be the equivalent today, folks, about a need comes up in this church and one of you gives away their car. Just outright. This is the equivalent of a need coming up in this church and somebody selling their cabin up in northern Colorado and bringing them money. This is the equivalent of somebody breaking their retirement fund to give to someone in need. This is not petty giving. Now, I don't know what this looks today for, like, like today for the church. There are a number of complicating factors here, but I do think it, it means at least our attitude has to be one that is sacrificial, that we would not hold on to our possessions so tightly that they make us cold to the lack of flourishing of other people. You know, what would it look like? Maybe just once, not, not all the time, because I know I don't have this kind of money, but, but maybe just once in our lives, if we could have such an attitude of sacrificial giving that someday when you are 35, 45, 65, 85, a real need would arise and the Holy Spirit would prick your heart and you'd say, that's me. I'm the one who gets to meet that need. And you do something absolutely revolutionary and you give, not out of what you have, what's easy, but you give from your heart. Oh, what would it look like even just in a room here if all of us at one point in our life did that? Sacrificial giving. Secondly, relational. There's a relational stance. This is as political as I will get in the entire message. Um, In Scripture, you see some state-sponsored charity and welfare. You don't see a ton. That's as political as I will get. But, but, but what, I, what I mean by it, and the reason I say it even at all, is this. There's a beautiful benefit to the church caring for the poor. Because rather than employing economists and social workers and counselors who have to vet people, all right, have you used drugs or not? Have you um, done this or that or not? Are you exploiting us or not? The church vets people for its care through relationship. Yeah, Christ the King could just give away a bunch of money to some charity somewhere, but instead, guess what? You get to invite poor people to church into relationship with you. And when you do that, you don't just get to know them as an object, as a number, as a... a a section on a spreadsheet somewhere in some national database, you get to know them as people made in the image of God, needing Jesus. You get to actually show them the balance. That you don't just want to meet their 
their physical needs. You want to care for them by introducing them to Christ. And you get to do both because they are now a friend. They are family. They are someone who's been brought into the circle. You're, you're married to them. And come on, we, we make membership vows here. In the PCA, what, what if, what happens if, if and or when, and my hope it would be when a lot more than if, incredibly poor people join this church and stand before you and you make membership vows to them and they make membership vows to you and suddenly they're a relative that you can't just ignore. Rather, they're someone who gets brought into your home. Their kids get to go to nursery with your kids. They get to sit next to you at a Thanksgiving dinner or a Christmas program or something like that. And if you don't move and they don't move, maybe you walk with them for the next 30 years of their poverty. That's what the early church did. That's relational care. That's the gospel. It says that if we're actually going to care for people, it's going to cost us something. And that cost is going to be much more than our bank account. But man, it's going to be beautiful. And third not just sacrificial or relational, but together they, they, they make a beautiful third word, redemptive. And, and I think this is a great gospel shape because imagine, for instance, imagine if Jesus came and was just sacrificial, but you never knew him. Man, that would stink. Jesus comes and says, hey, here's a second chance at life. Hope you don't blow it. And walks away. We do that a lot as a church. We write a check, we send it off to a charity, we're done. We do it as people. But what about the other end? What about just being relational? Imagine Jesus comes and says, man, hey, you're a sinner. This kind of stinks. My father's mad at you. You're going to hell, but I'm going to be with you all the way. There's no sacrifice. There's no atonement. There's no hope. Man, we do that a lot too. The poor come in and out of our lives. We see them, we meet them, we greet them. And then they walk away because we never got invested. But biblical care for the poor is not a handout, but it is a service that draws individuals into the covenant community in such a way that they are changed and you are changed. Imagine again for a moment that that generic poor person which even to say this individual stands before you makes membership vows to you and says i'm going to sit here and be with you for the next decade or two or three or the, the entire history of your life and you care for them and you minister to them and slowly over time you help them with physical needs and you do so in a way that affirms their dignity that you care about them, that you show them the image of God, you slowly work through perhaps the, the sins that they have brought their poverty upon themselves. You stand with them and for them against the oppression that they're not causing to themselves. And before you know it, you're being Jesus to one another. You are literally embodying the gospel to this person. There's so much application here that we don't have time at all to go into. 
I really just challenge you on, on two things. Individually, what does this look like for you and your family? Unless the conversation becomes too, sim- too simple, it's not just a financial question. In fact, it might be very, uh, uh, only a very small piece of it might be a financial question. I know for my wife and I, it looks like this. Am I willing to let my one-year-old play with kids who didn't take a bath yesterday? I know that sounds simple, but it's real as a dad who's still really freaked out by a fever. All right? It looks like this. It looks like, do I want that kind of person sitting on my couch when I run a Bible study out of my home? That's what it looks like for me. It looks like this. Am I willing to be exploited by the person I know is coming to my church to get stuff from me in the hopes that they'll be drawn in by the gospel in my life? That's what it looks like for me. Before I ever hit talking about my bank account, I challenge the same thing to you. What are your questions? Where does this sermon make you feel uncomfortable? Those are the conversations to have over lunch. But I know at least this. So in light of what many would in fact say a really bad year for Christians in the United States, um, a year in which many of our long-held beliefs have been challenged, a year in which we continually are struggling, um, not only politically, relationally, culturally, a year in which many pundits have said, Um, We're becoming a very post-Christian nation. And others have voiced ways and reasons why we should, quote, win back America for Jesus. I'm intrigued by the ways in which cultures have won back their countries for the Lord. Um, Most of the time, unfortunately, we've done it with um, swords. So you can't really say we actually won them back for the Lord. Every once in a while, we did it through babies, um, just populating a place more than anybody else. But here's how we did it first. This is a letter written by the Roman Emperor Julian about 100 years or so after the death of Christ, 150, um, I believe. Julian, you need to know, was called the apostate. Um, He was not a Christian, um, invested heavily in paganism, in Roman cults and whatnot. Um, And he called Christians atheists because they didn't believe in Roman gods. So you just need to understand that. These are his words, the Roman Emperor Julian. The Galilean movement has specifically and specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care of the burial of the dead, it is a scandal, this. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that these atheists care not only for their own poor but for ours as well, while those who belong to us Look in vain for the help that we should render them. The church, as they were being persecuted, as they were having votes taken against them that made them very uncomfortable in 
their own nation, as they experienced um, issues that I'm sure in their own conversations they complained about and struggled about and were anxious about, combated the anti-Christian flavor, the anti-Christian ethos, the, the very persecuting, stifling, scary environment in which they woke up and every morning turned on their version of CNN and found out that yet another decision had been made that made their life more difficult. Not by anger, not by fear, not even originally and immediately through doctrine, but rather because they cared enough about the flourishing of their world to spend themselves for those around them. And because of that, they embodied a Savior who came and spent Himself for all of us. That is my prayer for Christ the King, and it's my prayer for all of us. May we do the same, not because Jesus just gave us an example that we should do likewise, but because He's in us. And therefore, we're able to do likewise before this world. Let's pray. Jesus, again, may you come, may you change us, may you rend us, may your gospel so infect and move and change our lives that it may be said one day of us as well here in this city, in this nation, in this world, not that we got a lot of cultural power or that um, we swayed elections or that um, we were ourselves powerful, but rather that we spent ourselves in worship of you on behalf of those not flourishing around us. Help us even today to have, and in the, in the, in the days and weeks ahead, to have interesting conversations Holy Spirit, prick our hearts not just in this moment, but at the dinner table, at night, as we watch the news tomorrow. Actually get into our lives and change the way we practically do the things we do. We pray this all in your name. Amen.